This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Acts chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 1, um, verse, uh, verse 1. Before we get there, uh, when you or I, whenever we made, or hopefully one day will make, the decision in our lives to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that's something everyone must do if they ever have hope of eternal life. When you make the decision that Jesus Christ is going to be your Savior and your God, at that moment you're given a new citizenship. Peter talks about it. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. We become citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I'm a dual citizen, and so are you if you're a Christian. I'm a citizen of the United States. I've got a passport to prove it. Um, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I have an indwelling spirit who makes that known to me and gives me that assurance every day of my life. When we become a citizen of that kingdom, we become a citizen of a kingdom that plays by different rules, if I can put it that way. Let me be very specific to say we don't become citizens of the kingdom of God by obeying rules. It's not about rules. I become a citizen of Christ's kingdom by putting my faith and trust in him, by believing that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that if I believe in him, I'll have everlasting life. That's what makes me a citizen of the kingdom. But when I become a part of that kingdom, just like any nationality, any kingdom, uh, Jesus has some expectations for me and of me and from me. Rules may not be the best word, but there are some expectations that come along with that. Expectations like what? Well, in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the passage of Scripture we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of Jesus speaking, and in those three chapters, he's saying to his disciples, that would be you and I, I hope, who know him as Savior, here's, here's what it's like to live in my kingdom. But in my kingdom, things are different than they are in the United States and in this world. Let's put it that way. Things like, things like he says in there, don't resist an evildoer. Someone does evil. Don't resist that. Wait a second. That's, you know, my daddy told me, you know. Um, he says, turn the other cheek. Have you heard that before? That's in there. In my kingdom, I want you to turn the other cheek. He says, if he sues you, someone comes to you and sues you for your shirt. Give him your shirt, but give him your cloak or your coat as well. He didn't ask for that. doesn't matter. These are the rules. How will I expect you to live in my kingdom? He says, the, here's maybe the hardest one, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, read that with me. Will you do that? Let's read it together out loud. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Say what? Find your life, you lose it. And if you lose it because of me, you find it. Paul said it this way. He kind of 
took this way of saying something very similar in Philippians 1.21. He said, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Outside of Christ, which is where I lived before I knew Jesus as my Savior and you as well, outside of Christ and outside of his kingdom, the rule would go something like this. I live for me, and dying is what I try to avoid at all costs. Dying is the end, and I don't want to die, so I die, and I exercise, and I do all the things, go to the doctor and do everything I can to stay healthy, to live as long as I can. But Paul says for me to live is not about me, it's about Christ, and dying is even better. That's different, isn't it? All this turning cheeks and giving away possessions and loving those who hate me is about surrendering to the king. Surrendering. We think of surrender. We think of giving up. We think of losing, don't we? Surrender means I I give up. I, I can't win this. Surrendering to the king. But the Bible teaches us that when we surrender to our King Jesus, we aren't losing, we're winning. Well, maybe that's what he meant when he says whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will find it. When I surrender, really, I'm winning. These missionaries that we've been following here in this series turn the world upside down. Paul and Barnabas are really going to exemplify for us this morning what just what that means, surrendering to the king and, and, and what we just sang about just a moment ago. They're going to show us how to surrender and how when we surrender, that brings us victory as they're about to move into some uncharted territory with the gospel. Follow along with me while I read chapter 14, the first seven verses. The same thing happened in Iconium. Same thing as what? Well, you've got to back up. They were just, come, just came from the city of Antioch. And in Antioch, they, the, their message was accepted by some, but many of the Jews and the Gentiles, the prominent women and the Gentile leaders rejected it and began to oppose them and, and uh, said, no, we don't want to hear any more of this. Remember last week, if you were here, uh, Paul and Barnabas kicked the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them. The same thing happened in Iconium, what same thing? They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. You ever had anybody try to poison your mind with negativity, with criticism, with lies, with rumor, with innuendo, with conspiracy theories. You ever had anybody try to poison your... I don't want to ask you this if you ever poisoned anybody's mind. They were poisoning the minds of the the Greeks and the Jews in in the city. So Paul and Barnabas, verse 3, stayed there in that city for some time and spoke boldly, get this, how do they speak? In reliance on the Lord who testified to the message of his grace by granting that signs and wonders be performed through them. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews who were poisoning the minds of everyone who didn't believe 
and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, they got city council in on this. To assault and stone them, stoning was the Jewish method of execution. They would pick up big rocks and throw them at the person until they pummeled them to death. To assault and stone them, an attempt was made to do that. Barnabas and Paul found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns called Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside, and there they kept evangelizing. How do victories come with surrender? One thing that I see in this passage of Scripture is how Paul and Barnabas spoke. And the Bible says they spoke with the Spirit's power. They spoke with the Spirit's power. So flip over with me. Keep your place here. But, but find um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you will, the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 2. One through five. Paul writes to the Corinthian church about this whole thing about how he spoke. And he says, you remember when I came to you, brothers? I came to you announcing the testimony of God. I came to you to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Paul was just, I'm not a great orator. Didn't come to you with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the main thing, and that's what I shared. Maybe I didn't do a great job of it, but that's what I was there to tell you about. I came to you, verse 3, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's who I was when I came to you. I was fearful. I was weak. I was trembling. Not exactly the kind of motivational speaker I would go to hear and see, you know? That's who I was, he said. My speech and my proclamation, my preaching, were not with persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come as a great motivating speaker. That's not what it was about. But with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom. So you didn't walk away from that saying, man, that Paul, he really is a great guy. He's amazing. I never heard anybody's talk like that. It was incredible. He had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. It wasn't about Paul. He said, not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Our speech, speak with the Spirit's power. In sharing Christ, we can think that we need to say just the right words in just the right way. In fact, if, if I asked you to, to stand up and tell me if this is you, a, a lot of us would stand up. Some of you say, I have never verbally shared my faith with another person who needs Jesus Christ because I'm scared I would say the wrong thing. That's a lot of people in this room right now. I'm scared I would say the wrong thing or not explain it well. I'm scared I would say something that maybe I shouldn't, that I wouldn't get it right. And while, please hear me, while it never hurts as you share your faith with somebody to speak intelligibly, you know, and with good grammar and 
the fact of the matter is life change that results from speaking the gospel, life change doesn't come from my eloquence or my correct vocabulary or the, that I say the right words. Life change comes from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can take my biggest mess-ups and turn them into something great, can he? He absolutely can. Sometimes I'll get done with the sermon. I'll get up and preach. And I'll step down and I'll walk away and I'll say, man, Rick, that stunk to high heaven. You know? You know, you, you, you work all week and try to get something ready and you get up there and preach and you stumble and you bumble and you mess up and it's like there's not a coherent thought coming from your mouth and I'm sure God's upstairs in heaven and he's looking down and going, is there anybody else I can call to do that down there in Nag's head? I feel like that sometimes. But here, let me tell you what happens. Almost every time that I feel like that, Before I leave this building, somebody grabs me and pulls me aside and says to me something to this effect, Rick, it was like you were talking right to me. It was like I was the only one in the room. Rick, have you been following me around this week? How did you know, Rick, God is changing my life and what you said today and what God's word said today is the greatest, is exactly what I needed. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm going, did they hear what I said? As you and I communicate the gospel, the most important thing to remember is this. This is God's word. It's powerful. It's sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. And fortunately, praise God, he is able to make it powerful even in our weakest attempts. You see, it's not about, proclaiming the gospel is not about you and me and how good of a job we can do. Proclaiming the gospel is about him and about relying on him and his power. To testify that their message was truth, Luke records, Luke wrote this book of Acts, Luke tells us, that so that everybody would know their message was truth and that it was divine, God granted them the ability to perform signs and wonders. Signs means that the miracles that they did conveyed a lesson. It taught something. Wonders suggest that the miracles created a sense of awe, like, whoa! Never saw that before. I thought that was impossible. Luke will tell us in a moment about one of those miracles in the next verses. By the way, let me interject here. I, I really, I know God still does miracles, and he does them when, just like Luke says, when he chooses to grant them. It's not up to any man, any preacher, any person that claims to be a miracle worker. It's not up to me or any person to decide when a miracle will take place. It's not. We need to be, instead of running after miracles, we need to be running toward the Savior. By the way, you've, everybody, how many, how many of you have ever seen a miracle? Raise your hand. Oh, I'm going to catch you now. All right, you, you should have raised your hand. Two things. The most important miracle, powerful miracle that you can point people to, you didn't see this, but you know it's true, is the risen Savior. God resurrected Jesus from the dead. Boom! Jesus told the Jews, you keep asking for signs. Here's the sign I'm going to give you. No more after that. Kill me, and in three days I will rise again. 
He predicted that, and it happened. But you didn't raise your hand. Let me, let me explain something to you. If you are a child of God, if you've been born again by his spirit because you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're a miracle. God took a dead man, you and me, dead woman, and gave us new life and has changed us. That's miraculous. You are a miracle. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a miracle. Or say it this way. You're a miracle. <laughs> miracle. But something else I see in this passage that we need to take note of as we're out sharing the gospels, we're watching these missionaries, is this. The gospel divides. The city, it says, people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, some siding with the apostles. How does the gospel divide? Let me suggest three ways. It divides theologically. You've got to look up on the screen to know how to spell that word right. It divides theologically. Theology is the study of God. What do you mean? The gospel says Jesus is the only way to God. You cannot get to God. You cannot have everlasting life unless you go through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that himself. Now, if you accept that, as we at Nags Head Church do, you're going to find that a lot of people, if you share your story and you share the gospel, there are people that they don't want to accept that theology, and that divides you with them. Some people want to believe, well, yeah, I kind of like the Jesus thing, but I also think that I have to have something to do with it, so it's my good works plus Jesus. Some believe that all faiths lead to God, you know, we're all, everybody in the world, we're all, we're just on different paths, but we're all going to the same, whatever it might be, to see whoever might be up there, wherever it is. That, that's divisive when you say, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Theologically, the gospel divides them from us. Secondly, the gospel divides culturally. Not long ago, I shared with you how the Dare County Board of Commissioners asked me to come to the, one of their board meetings and open up the meeting with an invocational prayer. They're inviting all the clergy to do that. And they said, we want you to come and pray. But they said in their invitation, but, but understand this, don't mention Jesus' name. They want to be politically correct and so I refused. I said, no thanks. Why? Because Christ is polarizing. Divides culturally. And here's something that a whole lot of you experience, and you know this to be true from your own life. The gospel divides families, doesn't it? Jesus said it would happen. He said belief in him would divide families. In Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, he said, do you think that I came here to, to give peace on earth? Wait a second, isn't that what the angels talked about at Bethlehem? And a lot of times we confuse the second coming of Christ, why he's coming back with why he came the first time. He said, do you think I came here to provide peace on earth? No, that's not it. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law because of the gospel. 
Some of you have experienced that in your homes. You can testify that Jesus was right because your faith has not been welcomed, maybe by your spouse, maybe by your parents, maybe by your children. It's divided your family. And you know what Jesus was talking about. We hear stories from other parts of the world where men or women become Christians and are then disowned and even sometimes persecuted by their own families. And, and that makes some people want to quit. What would it take to make you quit, by the way, your following Jesus? What would it take to make you quit? The division that was here in this city resulted in an attempt to stone Barnabas and Paul. But listen, they were able to get out of town without being harmed. Somehow somebody came and warned them, there's a lynch mob coming. And they got out of Dodge. Would you have said to the other guy, once that happened, you knew people were coming down the street and they're all carrying big rocks, they want to kill you? I, I kind of think I might have been the guy that would have looked at the other guy and said, you know, bud, this has kind of been fun up to this point. But frankly, I want to stay alive. I'm not ready to die for sharing the gospel. Hey, let's just go home. But not these two men. As soon as they left Iconium, it says they went right to Lystra and they continued sharing the gospel. That's what evangelizing means. Look with me at verse 8. And when they got to Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from his birth, he had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. And after observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Why did he say it in a loud voice? I mean, it doesn't say he was deaf. Right? It just said he couldn't walk. Why did it get loud? Well, the reason is, what happens when you're out and something loud happens? Does it get your attention? You know, what was that? And the people heard Paul say, stand up on your feet. And people said, and they're, about, you know, they're buying their groceries and all in the market. Whoa, whoa, what's that about? And they ran over to where was, this was going on, and they saw what happened next. And he jumped up. He didn't slowly get up like I do. You know, I'd have been sitting in a chair for a while. You know what that's like? Some of us are our age, Ben, you know, and we don't get up. We don't jump up anymore. Afraid we might rupture something, you know, so bust a gut. I don't know, but was, we, we don't jump up much. He jumped, this guy had never jumped up. His legs had never been used. They were his muscles. Can you imagine his whole, his muscles were atrophied until this moment. Jumped up to his feet and began to walk around. And when the crowds that were attracted, when Paul started getting really loud, the crowds that were there saw what Paul had done. They raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, in the local dialect. Paul and Barnabas, by the way, they don't speak Lyconian. They speak Greek and Aramaic, Aramaic being the language of the Jewish people. They speak those two languages, and these people start talking Lyconian. And in the Lyconian language, they say, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. The gods are here. And then they started to call Barnabas Zeus. How many of you heard of Zeus? He's the big guy in the Greek 
chain, you know, in the, in the ladder. He's the top dog in Greek pagan God stuff. All right, that's where he is. And they called Paul Hermes. You may not have heard of Hermes, but Hermes was the spokesman for Zeus. They called Paul Hermes because Paul was doing all the yelling, all right? He's doing all the talking. They said, they've come to us. Then the priests, verse 13, of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of town, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he with the crowds intended to offer sacrifice. They're going to worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking they're these Greek gods come to humanity. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd, shouting. Again, they're getting loud. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you. We're not gods. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And Paul goes on, and in past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to go do their own way. What you're worshiping, he's allowed this. Although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by, here's the witness that God's given everybody, giving rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness. Stops talking, and even though they said these things to convince them we are not gods, Luke says they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Jot this down. When Christ is received, everything changes. Paul somehow saw that this man had the faith to be healed, yet sometimes people were healed. You read this story of Acts, people who didn't exhibit faith got healed. You see, the purposes of signs and wonders like this, like this healing, were not to set a standard. Oh, this is how it always happens because it wasn't always the same. But they were to affirm that their message, the gospel, was powerful. And the crowd saw the miracle, but they hadn't yet heard the message. You see, miracles don't save. It's the gospel that we have to believe that message in Jesus Christ. They hadn't yet believed, they hadn't yet heard the the message, the miracle was evidence to these pagans of some sort of supernatural power. They weren't sure what it was. They thought it's Zeus and Hermes because all they had known up to this point were the pagan gods of their culture. They had not yet heard of the one true living God. And so they're ready to worship Barnabas and Paul. It's kind of exciting. Gods are here. Did you know they were coming? No. Well, they're here today tearing their robes, what Paul and Barnabas did when they figured out what was going on. They're bringing the, setting up an altar and getting ready to kill animals and sacrifice them, and they're pulling to the, pointing to them. Uh, they began to tear their robes. What is that all about? That was a Jewish reaction, Jewish cultural reaction to blasphemy or and sometimes in mourning. Many times in the Old Testament, you'll read of someone tearing his clothes in mourning or exasperation. In, in the story of Jesus, as he was as he was questioned by the high priest just before his beatings and his crucifixion, the high priest, it says, tore his clothes in response to Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. That's found in Mark chapter 14, the high priest, when he said, are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And he tore his clothes because in his mind, Jesus had committed 
blasphemy, claiming to be God when he, in his mind he was not. It was a visible, this tearing of clothes, it was just a visible way to protest loudly or say, no! But this gave Paul an opportunity, and Paul and Barnabas are always finding opportunities to explain the gospel, to explain who God is, and they said, look, we're not gods. And to explain to them who the real living God is, and he started with what these people understood. He said, hey, God's always given a witness. For example, the witness that the one true living God has always given is creation. He sends rain. He waters the crops so that we can eat. That's God that does that. And creation's something that everybody sees. This morning I got up, got up early. Clock's been set an hour early, an hour ahead. I got up and driving down, the, I had to turn my headlights on to get to church this morning. I thought, whoa, it's dark this morning. What was that? That was a witness of God, of nature, of creation. It was dark. Now, a little while later, I looked up in the sky and it began to get blue and the clouds and all that. That's God. That's a witness that God is doing something. God's always provided a witness, creation, free will that God allowed you to believe for all these years in these false gods, but God's always been giving a witness. God's been the one, the one true living God has given you food. Paul used the word living God, by the way, to contrast their pagan gods who are nothing more than idols and statues, and he called their gods worthless. You ever had anybody tell you something that you valued was worthless? My dad, several years ago, in a visit, handed me a little Ziploc bag, and in that Ziploc bag was a pair of cufflinks, gold cufflinks, black onyx stones. He said, Rick, I'm going to give these to you. These were your grandfather's. I thought, wow. I got I mean, my grandfather died when I was six. I didn't know him very well. But his name is the same as mine. I'm named after my dad who was named after my grandfather. And, you know, these were your grandfather's. I had something. That's the only thing I owned that belonged to my grandfather. And those things were, became very precious to me. But I wanted them cleaned up a little bit and, and so forth. So I, uh, George Farah, who's a partner in our church, he's up here playing the harmonica today. George is a jeweler by trade. You might not have known that. So I came to George. I said, George, can you kind of buff them up and clean them up? A little? You know, they've been sitting around for 40 years, unused, longer than that, 50 years. He said, sure, Rick, I'll take them. And, and I got a phone call from George. I guess it was a call. Maybe he told me in person. I can't remember. And he said, Rick, those cufflinks that your grandfather's, the stone is not onyx, it's plastic. And it's not really gold. Rick, that thing that you value so much, it's worthless. Dude, thanks a whole lot, you know? You just kind of made my day, my grandfather's jewelry that I thought was valuable that's all these years old, it's costume. I mean, he said, I, tried to, I started to buff the stone, and all I did was scratch it all to pieces because it's plastic. <laughs> you ever have somebody tell you that something you valued was worthless? Paul says, your religion, your gods are worthless. So how would that make you feel? 
These people were ingrained in their religion. They weren't quite ready to turn away from their false gods and their traditions and turn totally to Christ. And, and that's often a barrier to faith in Christ in every culture, including ours here in the United States. You know, you go into some cultures like the Hindus in India, and you present Christ to them, and they've got a list of hundreds and hundreds of gods. And they say, you tell them about Jesus Christ, and they'll go, great. He sounds like a God to me, and they they say, yeah, we believe in him, and they add him to their list of hundreds of other gods. Here in America, for example, there are those whose religion here in this country has been New Age thinking. You know know how, how New Age expresses itself? New Age thinking, New Age thinking says, I'm sending some positive vibes your way. I see that on Facebook a lot. You know, somebody's got, you know, some kind of problem. Or, I'm sending positive vibes your way. Well, what does that mean? Or, or people look into the horoscope to get their direction for the day. American religion also includes materialism in a large way because as a society, we've been so blessed with so much, we can easily put the emphasis in life on our possessions and make them our idols. What was an idol? Jot this down. Ultimately, anything or anyone who has my devotion and the highest place in my life is a God to me, to you. When Christ becomes your Savior, you acknowledge that he is God. And by believing in Christ, you're turning away from the gods of your past. For many that turn, that turn that they do, that change is immediate. It's instantaneous. And some of you could give testimony to that. When I accepted Jesus as my Savior, bang, I mean, everything was totally different. All boom, like that. Other people, it takes them a little while. That's why Paul said to the Romans, You need to be going up to that altar and renewing your mind. Paul's letter to to some of the churches, he had to remind them that the pagan gods that surrounded them were not gods at all, but as he told the crowd at Lystra, they were worthless things. Are you holding on to some worthless things, by the way, that you're trusting in? They're worthless compared to a relationship with the living God. Then verses 19 and 20. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch where they had kicked the dust off their feet. They had been rejected and opposed. Their message was not taken well. Jews came from Antioch and some Jews joined them from Iconium where they had the lynch mob got formed. And they followed them to Lystra. And when they had won over the crowds by poisoning their minds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Rejection, opposition, persecution are all part of the deal. These Jewish antagonists convinced the crowd, Paul's a troublemaker, and they stoned him. You know, in Iconium, there was an attempt to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they fled the city. They went on to Lystra, and there in Lystra, a crowd wanted to turn them into gods. Keep in mind with this thought, um, that, that sometimes adulation 
is a greater threat than persecution? How many, just be real honest, how many pastors get stuck up on such a high pedestal by people that that's what is their ultimate downfall? They begin to believe there's something they're not. Adulation is a greater threat sometimes than persecution. When Paul and Barnabas protested about this worship, the Jewish opposition from Antioch and Iconium turned that crowd that got told, your gods are worthless. They turned them against Paul and Barnabas, and Paul was stoned, dragged outside the city, left for dead. What is it, by the way, what, what, what will cause you to quit? Would that make you quit? The division didn't cause them to quit. These people made this attempt to end it all, but it wasn't going to happen with Paul and Barnabas. Pardon me, I'm looking for my notes here. I'm I'm still figuring this contraption out. You ever ask the question, how come God didn't let them get stoned in one city and then like the next day, he lets Paul get stoned? What was up with that? Why did God allow it, not allow it in one place and allow it in the other? Why didn't they try to flee Lystra and Derby? The second point here is that following Christ is not about success. It's not about survival. It's about Surrender. Now, we don't know all the details to this story. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas, they didn't know the lynch mob was coming. Perhaps they were surrounded. Perhaps they didn't realize what was about to take place. But here's what we do know about Paul and Barnabas, these first missionaries. They totally trusted in God's spirit to guide them, completely. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a learner, if you're going to grow, if you're going to allow Jesus to be not just your Savior, but your Lord, your God, you're going to have to learn submissiveness to him. And that means you won't always be given the easy or fun things in life. There certainly will be times in your life when you've got a choice to make. I'm going to either obey and do the hard thing, or I'm going to disobey. When I'm a disciple, that means I'm constantly taking the next step of faith. And in doing so, I've got to be willing to give him, submit to him, to give him the right in my life to say to me, Rick, go there. Rick, stop and wait. Rick, turn and go that direction. I've got to give him that authority in my life. And the battle that goes on in my heart and every disciple's heart is our human weakness to resist the Spirit's leading. What do you mean? Well, let's just say I've wronged someone and I know the Spirit of God wants me to go to that person and ask forgiveness. It's not easy, is it? I've been offered an opportunity, maybe a new job, maybe a recreational activity, that I know if I go ahead and take that or do that, it's going to cause me to drop out of my fellowship, my worship opportunities with other believers. And that can really be a difficult choice, especially for young Christians. 
The Bible and the Holy Spirit are going to constantly in my life, in yours, if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to follow him. That's const- God's going to constantly, listen to me, be raising the bar, not lowering it in your life. All the time. Maybe just a little bit, but he's going to raise the bar of surrender in our lives if we're growing and maturing. But those steps we have to take are not, Paul, always easy steps. We live in a culture that more than ever offers opportunity to turn away from Christ rather than to turn to him. We live in a world where others, even our Christian friends, can encourage me, encourage you to take back control of your life from God. Please hear me. If you've wanted easy or you wanted a life with no troubles, you wanted something that God never promises. But what he did promise is this. If I put my life in his hands, I completely trust in him. I surrender to him. He will go with me every step and will step by step by step through the valley of the shadow of death, if necessary, conform you and me to the image of Christ. Paul and Barnabas somehow knew because of the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives and their sensitivity to his leading that they were to avoid that assassination attempt in Iconium. And somehow they knew. Here we go again, Rick. Somehow they knew, however, in Lystra, we're not to run, we're not to flee. That no matter what God allows, they were totally surrendered to him, living in his will, and that's the best place. Living in his will is the best place for all of us to be. Raise the question. Okay, okay then, pastor, you're so smart. Was it? No. <laughs> it wasn't God's will for Paul to be stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead? Could that possibly have been God's will? Let me answer that with a question. Could God have stopped that if he wanted to? But he didn't. Well, how could that be God's will? He must have had a good reason for allowing it. Perhaps Paul had this event, this story in his mind later when he wrote to the Roman church, these familiar words, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance. Paul, God knew he would call you. He knew what was going to happen, and he chose you to become like his son. And what did his son do? He willingly laid down his life. Is that easy? I hear so many Christians when bad things happen to them. I get so tired of this. Good things happen to Christians, and they say, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Go, God. And then when not so good things happen, they go, the devil did it. The devil's after me. Satan caused it. And I want to say, sure, Satan wanted Paul dead. But God allowed this for a reason. And the reason, I think, is right here in the text 
There is a more important end result. These new disciples in Lystra who had just believed the gospel, it says they were standing around Paul. He's laying on the ground, unresponsive. They believe he's dead, and maybe he is. They are there, and they're crying, and they're praying, and they're saying, God, how could you do this? God, he didn't deserve this. God, what in the world are you thinking? And maybe some were praying, God, please, can you do something for him? And in the midst of their sorrow and their confusion, Luke says, Paul got up, bloodied and beaten, got up, shook himself off, looked at his, these other brothers and sisters around him and said, let's go back into town. What did that do for those Christians? What would that have done for you? It would have been like you were a Duke fan last night at the Carolina game. You'd been screaming and shouting, go God. A few minutes ago you're saying, why God? Now you're saying, go God. These new Christians became instantaneously overridden by huge joy and amazement and faith and the confidence that it brings. If God be for us, Paul would write later, who can be against us? Who? They were seeing God do something victorious over their circumstances. And that's how God works. When things might seem to us to have gone so badly wrong, hear me, God can suddenly show us how he will use anything and everything for his glory. Let's bow in prayer. Would you stand with me? If you have questions about anything that was said this morning in this message, I would invite you, and five minutes after we're done here, we're going to have a question and answer time. You're welcome to stay. Maybe you don't have questions, but you think somebody else might, and you want to hear, stick around for a few minutes. I'd be glad for you to do that. Father, I, I watch, or I don't watch, but I watch through your word. These guys, Paul and Barnabas, And I want to say, why can't I be like that? And I think your answer back to me is, you can't be. The same spirit that lived inside of them, Rick, lives inside of you. Father, I long in my life to have that total surrender that they had, totally trusting you. And I can't imagine, Paul, what, what, or God, what Paul was thinking and when they started throwing those stones at him and hitting him in his body and in his head and he began to bleed and ultimately it took the life right out of him. And I can't imagine, Father, what was he... I'm guessing, Father, Paul was saying, not my will but yours be done. Help us to be those kind of believers with that kind of passion, that kind of surrender, knowing that what happens in your kingdom is far greater than anything that can happen outside of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.
This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.